0: Thank you all for worshiping with us this morning. I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're going to be opening to John 3 today. We'll be turning to Matthew 16 later on in the message if you want to find your place there. Um, but I would love for you to find uh, your place in John 3. We'll be reading from that text in just a few minutes. Uh, looking forward to a great time uh, and a great conversation around God's Word today. Uh, this message is really unlike uh, most that I prepare and most that I preach, maybe for better or for worse, we'll see. Uh, uh, but this isn't a message that really a single verse or a single text inspired like usual. Um, it uh, isn't something that a single stu- a ch- study of a chapter or a book led me to put together and present, uh, though we'll look at plenty of God's Word today, uh, 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 that's for sure. Um, th- this isn't a message that uh, really what is. Is based on a particular topic or subject that is pressing or pertinent to our considering our time and place, our generation, our culture. It's not like we're looking at something going on in the world and saying, what does the Bible say about it, like we do often, um, uh, even though that's an important thing to do and and we continue to do that. Um, This is a message really inspired by a specific thread that can be traced across several books of the Bible that has been uh, on our minds a lot as a church um, on our, in our conversations, uh, in all, all of our services and all of our activities as of late. Um, it's one that isn't just relevant for the Bible and the generation that it's uh, talked so much about, but it continues to be relevant today. Um, this is a message, not hiding or, or kind of uh, wasting any time today. This is a message about the church, for the church, about the church and for the church, that is meant to remind us of who we are how we got here and why we are here. Now, not just here specifically, not just us at Risen, but as the church of Jesus Christ that is all over the world in all kinds of gatherings and all sorts of styles and traditions, the church reminding us who we are, how we got here and why we are here. And don't worry, if you consider yourself someone who isn't deeply entrenched or enthused in the church or about the church and you just came here to hear about Jesus and find help from God, I think there's gonna be plenty on the table for you as well. Uh, and I, I think that uh, we'll all walk away, hopefully, with, with something uh, important from God. Uh, but this really is a result of the overflow of our conversations as of late here as a church. If you've been here with our evening services, um, you know that we've spent a lot of time talking about the church through the lens of the book of Acts, uh, which is about the founding and formation of the church in its earliest days. We've also been doing a lot of discipleship conversations about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples, that we should all endeavor to do that. Um these two things have been front and center of my study for the past six to nine months. I've been living in the book of Acts and living in this idea of discipleship and what does it mean uh, to, to go into the world and make disciples and how can we be prepared to do that. So this, is, this, this sermon this morning is really the overflow of all the things that my heart has been filled with over the last um, more than a year. And uh, if you know anything about the book of Acts, You know that Acts is an extension of the Gospels, that really the Gospels kind of lead into that sequel that is the book of Acts. We know that Acts really is volume two. Luke wrote his Gospel, and then he wrote the book of Acts. But Acts is not just a follow-up to Luke's Gospel. Acts is a follow-up to all Four of the Gospels. The four Gospels tell the same story through different eyes, and then Acts tells the next story through many of those same eyes, yet it combines the narrative. Uh, we, we have these different accounts of Jesus and his ministry that all funnel into a single church, a single story about that one church. The Gospel tells us so many stories of different people who encounter Jesus, who all have their lives changed by Jesus, the same Jesus. And then Acts takes all those different people and puts them in the same, not always the same building, but the same group, the body of Christ. And surprisingly, they all get along really well. And oh, by the way, they went on to change the world. Uh, When you think about the connection between the gospel and Acts, I think this setup is meant to emphasize something very specific, that though we are all unique and different, We all come to the same Jesus. If you read the Gospels, four different people tell four different sides of the story, encountering many more people that all meet Jesus, but they all meet the same Savior. And what that all funnels into is a common Savior leads us into a shared church. Now, sharing is something we learned a lot about as kids, probably because we aren't doing it well and someone has to teach us about it, right? We all have stories of uh, when we didn't share so well and maybe we're proud of that moment that we learned to share when we were into our 20s or 30s, right? Um, You know, when we share something, there are both benefits and responsibilities, come along with joint equity now we like to have equity we don't really care for joint equity unless they're helping to pay uh, the costs, right but joint equity has its benefits but it also has its responsibilities the good news um, you get to enjoy something without bearing all of the weight of that something the sometimes less than good news is that every shareholder must bear some measure of responsibility so in the gospels We hear Jesus call every disciple to this shared level of both blessing and responsibility. Now, I'd love to preach a sermon just about the blessing, but there are responsibilities. And sometimes preachers lean lean a little bit too much into the responsibility without telling everybody about the blessings. So it's a balance But Jesus called every one of us, every one of you, whether you are a disciple, a would-be disciple or want to be a disciple, every one of you are called to this shared level of what it means to be a member of the church, a part of the body of Christ that brings about blessing and responsibility. Now, over the course of our discipleship conversations here as, as a church, we've talked about and learned about Uh, the imperatives of Jesus, how Jesus gave these crucial, vital commandments, these non-negotiable commandments, these commandments that if you are going to follow him, we've got to do these things for the good of ourselves, the good of others, for the good of the greater body. We've, We've heard Jesus and we've studied these imperatives that he said are necessary to be a good disciple and to make disciples. And in the Gospels, we learn imperatives in principle, but in Acts, we witness them in practice, which I think is such a great why Acts is such a great resource is because we get to see people do the things that Jesus said they should do in the Gospels and it helps us as a church we have a reference point. we have examples to follow uh, and, and if you 've been coming here. You know how revolutionary these imperatives from Jesus are, considering what our lives might look like with their application. Jesus said we must surrender, listen, abide, walk, love, serve, and share, just to name a few. And what it's clear, uh, if anything is clear in the book of Acts, is the church obeys all of them. No, they weren't perfect, far from it. But their devotion and continual submission to God's will, even over and against their own will, was as close to perfect as I think it could ever get on earth. But we should strive to be just right there with them. Now, perhaps the verse in Acts that captures their faithfulness as well as their passion is a verse that we've looked at before. But a verse that we should do more than look at, it's a verse that we should memorize and mimic, I've preached on this verse before, y'all have heard this verse enough, hopefully you've memorized it, Acts chapter five, Peter and the apostles when they're on, on trial in court respond, we must obey God rather than men. Now the context for that is they are arrested for preaching the gospel and they continually break the law, rebel against the authorities and they say, why are you continually disobeying us? More importantly, why are you putting yourself in danger? I mean, what was most perplexing wasn't that they were breaking the law. It was that they were putting themselves at risk of dying. And and the courts were really befuddled. Why are you so willing to do something that might well get you killed? We must obey God rather than men. This is a statement that is echoed throughout every decision made by the disciples every time they give money, every time they give their lives, every time they serve, little or big. Every decision is ran through this filter. We must obey God rather than men. And even if you don't agree with this, or even if you aren't ready to personalize this, or maybe you don't even know if you should commit to this, I want us to say this out loud together, just the quote. Uh, just to try it on for size, just to see how it feels coming out of your mouth. It may feel good and you may say, well, I need to say that more often. That felt good. That felt empowering. That made me feel like I was closer to God. It may make you feel not good at all, but why not try it? It's not gonna hurt anybody, right? Hopefully you mean it. If you don't, you at least said it and maybe you'll say it again one day and you will mean it. Let's say this together, starting with we must. Back to the verse. We must obey God rather than men we must we must could you see yourself saying that on a daily basis could you see yourself causing uh, could you see this causing some trouble for you some conflict maybe it would cause you a great amount of joy bring you a great amount of joy or maybe it might would bring you some challenges or some discomfort just think about that while we talked this morning, uh, the disciples learned that this was the only way for them to live, the only option for their lives. They were always deferring to and delighting in God's will deferring to as in yours not mine delighting in as hey this is better than we could have chose otherwise deferring to delighting in God's will against every form of pressure and believe me there's a lot of pressure isn't there every form of pressure from the world and from within as in the people that want us to go their way and our heart that wants us to go its way because the pressure isn't just out there is it They were always deferring. And and, and sometimes I just pause and think about that statement in my own studies. They were deferring to and they delighted in God's will against the pressure that they faced from every angle, from in and out. And this is the reality God's people lived in in Acts. This is the reality that changed the world 2,000 years ago. This is why we can sit in churches like we do without much care at all or without much concern at all for for the rest of the world because of what they did, how they paved the way for us. Whether the enemy threatened them externally or whether they were tempted internally, they were driven by something that just would not relent. No matter how they were threatened or no matter how much they were tempted, they were driven by something that just would not let them say, you know what? Maybe we don't have to obey God today. Maybe we don't have a must today. From moral and ethical decisions to decisions pertaining to their own hopes and dreams and plans, they all would always respond to every pathway contrary to the imperatives of Jesus with a we must. When someone says you should do this, when they thought they might would be better off doing that, they felt something from their core saying we must obey God. Now, was this just some sort of religious obedience to Jesus? Was this some sort of dogged obligation or dogged obedience that they felt and that they had been ingrained with? You may think that's what it is. You may think, oh, they were just religious. They were radicalized. They were just told to do this and they didn't have another choice or didn't have another option. Uh, you may think that's the, that's the case, but, uh, and maybe that would be in today's world or maybe that's the way it is in, in religion, but I promise you it's something else. I promise you it's something better in their, in their case. You say to them, we must wasn't an obligation. You say, well, must sounds like an obligation, but it wasn't to them. It was a necessity, but it wasn't an obligation. Nobody was saying, you better, but something within them said, we've got to. Do you hear that? Nobody was pointing the finger saying, you better do this. In fact, it was the opposite. People were saying, you better not do that. You better not serve God. In their flesh was saying, "There's no reason to serve God," but there was something bigger, something greater that was giving them a necessity. Knowing Jesus had laid on them a burden of accountability and given them an ambition and an ability to do what was right. What was right? Jesus showed them that there was a right way. He alone showed them that there was a right way and they knew it and somehow they knew it and they couldn't escape it. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the greatest theologians ever, let alone, uh, of course, in the last 150 years, he wrote Mere Christianity, which is his thesis uh, for his theology. He was a master communicator about this subject, this idea that we all know that there's right and wrong and that there's somehow there's this notion within all of us that, that knows there's a right and knows there's a wrong, and we're trying to find something or someone to get us in that direction. He wrote this in Mere Christianity, First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way. That every one of us, deep down in our conscience, has an ought, has a sense of must. And they cannot really get rid of it. That no matter how much people pretend, well, I don't care and it's not a big deal to me, they can't, we can't get rid of it. But then he says, secondly, though, my second point of this whole book is... They don't, in fact, behave that way. That every person has this alt, this sense of alt, but nobody actually obeys that sense of alt because they can't seem to find a way to actually do what is right. But they're well aware that there is a right and there is a wrong, but their nature is taking them in the opposite direction. There is within all of us this notion that there is a right way and that there is a wrong way. It's why we justify ourselves when we know good and well we're in the wrong. Because we don't want to be in the wrong. Even if we have no good, no showing that, that we were right, we defend ourselves until we just can't defend ourselves because we don't want to admit that we were wrong. We want, there's something in us that wants to be considered right and wants to feel right. It's why we are so quick to judge others because the worse we can make others look is the better we can potentially feel about ourselves. The more people I can knock down, the more I have to stand on to make myself look a little bit better even when I don't look that good in reality. You know why it's become trendy in politics to evoke morality all of a sudden? Not because they care about what's right or wrong, but they know that everybody has this sense of alt in them. And they say things like, this is the right thing to do because everybody is searching for some standard. Everyone is searching for some way to feel as if they are right. And sometimes the easiest way to feel right is to point out how wrong everyone else is. And it's true that a lot of people, they know they're not right, but they can tell you who's wrong and they can tell you why those people are more wrong than them. And there's something about us humans that like doing that and that feel good about doing that. See, this world, this is the world that Jesus entered into 2000 years ago, a world that wanted to know what was right, a world that knew it was wrong and a world that was searching for the way that was searching for any way that might could get them in connection with God. Jesus came performing miracles, signs and wonders, making it impossible to miss that clearly he was a man sent by God because how else could he do the things that he did? The nation of Israel was unique among the nations. They believed in one God. They believed this one God made the whole world and chose Israel to reveal himself through it. And hopefully one day he would send a savior to it. One of Israel's finest religion scholars recognized that Jesus was clearly and certainly from from God. And he requested to spend some time with him privately, maybe at night when nobody else would see this going on. Nicodemus is that man. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. And he was employed by the state to solve the impossible riddle. What can humans do to overcome their sin and enter the kingdom of God? There were 50 Pharisees on the payroll of the government of Israel that were on the Sanhedrin, the council of Sanhedrin that had 100 100 Sadducees, 100 Pharisees. 50 of those were Pharisees, and those 50 Pharisees were paid to figure out how can we overcome sin? How can we enter into the presence of God? How can we measure up to this standard we all agree we are falling short of? And, and, and not just it was it God's standards, but they knew they were missing their own standard. Even if it was different than God's, they knew they were falling short of the standard And Nicodemus was one of the 50 lucky men who was employed during this administration to figure out how can we overcome sin? How can we enter into the kingdom of God? So that night, Nicodemus had Jesus over for a late supper. He came prepared with so many questions and explanations about his quest to please God and find peace in himself. But Jesus did this incredible thing and he did this with everybody he met with. Before Nicodemus ever got a question out, Jesus answered his question which is awesome if you're on this side of things and have all these questions jesus answers the question before anybody asks him because he knows your heart so nicodemus comes with all these sorts of prepared statements and it's into that conversation that we jump into john 3 if you have your bibles open john 3 Verse 1 says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Nicodemus takes a deep breath, rolls his sleeves up, pulls out his notebook and says, Jesus, I would like to ask you, some questions. Nicodemus came as one of us, knowing there was a right way, not able and not always wanting to live up to it, if we're being honest. Maybe you're here today as a Christian who agrees the Bible is God's word and believes his way is right, but even you would confess that you don't always have the must the disciples had. You don't always have the want to that they seem to have had. Maybe you're just wondering if there's help available from God to find this right way and stay on this right way. I I think this conversation will be insightful for everyone. So Nicodemus about to get his first question asked and Jesus answered. Do you see any question marks before that statement? No, because Nicodemus hadn't asked the questions yet. But Jesus answered his questions because he knew what he came to ask. He answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, not just get into, but he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this was over Nicodemus's head. The idea that people could experience a rebirth, a new beginning, the idea that though we are sinful by nature, that you can be saved by a supernatural work of God. And Nicodemus, I I think he's been a little bit comical here, but I think he was sincerely just confused and overwhelmed in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? I think Nicodemus knew that Jesus wasn't talking literally, but I think he was trying to say that, Jesus, what you're claiming is impossible. There's nothing that can change us at our core. So Nicodemus confesses what they already had agreed on as a people. That as we are born into this world, naturally we are born sinful. We remain in that condition. They thought we would remain in that condition forever. That it was up to us to try to work our way out of it, to do good, to counter the bad. If we're born sinner, sinful and sinners, then we're stuck that way. Hopefully, maybe some people aren't born as bad off as others. And maybe they're, a- they're able to work their way out of sin. They're able to climb their way out of the pit a little bit. But hopefully, no one is too far gone. Because that would mean nobody had a chance. This was the world they lived in, and they believed that many didn't have a chance. Many were too far gone. It's why they blacklisted certain people. It's why they wouldn't let certain people into the temple because they thought they were too far from God. But they let some people in who they knew good and well weren't good with God, but they might could get there if they were given enough time. Religion is desperate for more time to figure itself out. Nicodemus had run out of time. He was done trying to find out through this way or that way. He came to Jesus wanting to know what the way was. And Jesus does two things in response to Nicodemus. He affirms, Nicodemus, that our natural birth, that whatever state we may come into or may be in as humans, by no means disqualifies us or disadvantages us from knowing God. Do you hear that? That no matter how you are born and what situation you're born into or what situation you get into, nothing disqualifies you or disadvantages you from knowing God. That's the good news. That's what he says in verse number five. Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. So Jesus says, we come into this world naturally. And you may think you're stuck that way, but the supernatural work of God can get anyone where they need to be. You are not stuck in your sin. And even if you're born into the worst situation you could ever imagine, that by no means disqualifies you or disadvantages you from knowing God. You have just as much a chance as anybody because all of us are born into that camp. Nicodemus thought people were born into different camps. They, well, maybe some are good, some are bad, some are okay, some are worse off. Jesus says, everybody's born into the same bucket. We're all born into sin. But that does not disqualify anybody. It doesn't disadvantage anybody. But he does make it very clear. A redemptive encounter and experience with God is a necessity. So the sinfulness does not disqualify you. It's actually a prerequisite. It doesn't disadvantage you. Everybody is on the same playing field. But a redemptive encounter, a redemptive experience with God is a necessity. We're all born sinners. We're all equally sinful. Sin does not disqualify us, but we must be saved and redeemed by God if we're ever going to overcome this state. If we're going to satisfy the standard we feel accountable to, the standard of God that we are indeed accountable to, what does verse number seven say? He says, marvel not that I say to you, you must, there's our word, you must be born again. Now this is an imperative, right? You must be born again. Jesus goes on to say throughout the gospel that we must do many things, doesn't he? as a follow-up to this natural extension of this new birth, maybe you don't know this, but this word must has a special meaning in the New Testament. Uh, Those using it were aware that they weren't just saying we have to, but they were saying we want to do this more than we want to do anything else because we found something to match the curiosity we have for what is right. The word behind must in the original language is this little word day, Day simply means must, but it, the, the underlying idea of that word is it's a defined necessity that I've got to do this. This isn't some, uh, you know, religious, you've got to, it's this internal and this personal from the wellspring of our heart, I must do this. again you may say well this is just like every other religion that says you must you must you must you've got to do this you've got to do that what makes Christianity any different well Christianity is the only faith the only religious platform that doesn't just feature God or a messenger from God saying you must but it features God himself in our shoes saying I must as in God did not and do, did not stand and does not stand at heaven's gates saying, you must do this to enter in. He walked through those gates down to this earth and said, I must do this for you to save you and to bring you in. Look at verse 13. Because Nicodemus is completely confused at this point. No one has ascended to heaven... As in nobody's done something good enough to get there on their own, Nicodemus. You've got it all wrong. Except the one who came down from... Why would someone come down? Why would someone who is there say, hey, I want to go down there where they're all lost and confused? The Son of Man. And, of course, Jesus is referring to himself... Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, and here's our word, must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must be born again, but the son of man must be lifted up in order to make this possible for you. Do you see this? See the picture that's coming together here? This must was God's own conviction for us, his love, his passion, his compassion. Yes, Jesus said, you must, and we must be born again. We must surrender, we must submit, we must listen, we must abide, we must follow, we must walk, we must love, we must serve. But driving all of those must over and in our lives is Jesus' own work of salvation for us and in us and through us. Before he said, you must, he said, I must be lifted up. Because my love for you and my plan for you is what's driving all of this. This is why the disciples said we must, because they experienced the impact of his must. Does that make sense? They said we must because they felt the impact of his must. You see what I've learned from studying the gospels and acts again and again and seeing how this movement got off the ground is that this book is more than just words. It's the work of God. It's the power of God. It's the proof of what God has done and what God can still yet do. The Bible is more than just words. When we read the Bible, we hear something louder than words. We see the action of God. We see the footsteps of God moving in our direction. We hear the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God working in our lives. Indeed, actions speak louder than words, and the action of Jesus proves his love for us. His plan for us. And this is why in Acts, their message was that Jesus' death brought salvation, forgiveness of sins and filling of the Holy Spirit. It's why they preach again and again and again, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you will be born again. You will be changed from the inside out. You will receive the same spirit that made them bold and brave that made them say, we must. It was not lost on them, but the Holy Spirit had moved into their lives. They were no longer in possession, or what they were in possession of, the constant presence of God. They were no longer on their own. They no longer owned their own lives. They belonged to God. Belonging to him made living for him obvious and, of course, desirable. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. They were now living in and they were from the kingdom of God. They were now the church. You see, Acts is the church's origin story, but it's supposed to be the church's forever story. What we read about, the disciples surrendering, submitting, abiding, and walking, loving, and serving, this is what Jesus envisioned from the very beginning, what he alludes to here in John 3, that people would trust in him, but their faith in him because of his promises that they might enter into the kingdom of God here and now, that we might have life in him, eternal life. One of the greatest tragedies that has ever come out of Christianity is that somehow, someway, everlasting and eternal got diluted and reduced to just referring to the afterlife. I get it. On paper, those words sound very linear, but there's something bigger going on here. The Bible obviously promises heaven to all who believe, and that's going to be awesome one day, but we aren't there yet. And until we do get there, we must we must the emphasis of salvation has never been about quantity of life time it's about quality as in experiencing life as God always intended it eternal is so rich of a word it speaks of time but it really is less about endless and more about full life we think about being saved and living forever, and you know, oh wow, life never ends. That's great, but what if we thought about how full life is? Endless life isn't any better if it's just a drag. There's a lot of people who claim to have eternal life, yet they don't seem like they have full life. That's not okay. And let's be honest, let's do a little confessing here. A lot of professing Christians don't have joy, don't have hope, don't have love for themselves or for others. A lot of Christians are run down by the world as if they haven't been lifted up by a Savior from another world. Listen, y'all, salvation, eternal life, these words are louder and bigger than what we've settled for. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He doesn't just promise endless life one day. He promises full life today. Do you hear that? full life Romans 6 4 just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life again if you look up and study the word eternal it's from the word that we get eon from it means to partake of the character of that which lasts for an age as contrasted with that which is brief and fleeting it means to get a hold of something that has substance that seems like it's never gonna run out, like that widow in the Old Testament that never ran out of meal. It's having something in you. Jesus said, a wellspring of water that wells up eternal life. What is Jesus telling us? That true, eternal, and full life is found in Him in this life alone he modeled perfectly and enables to every person eternal life is knowing jesus growing in jesus and going for jesus it's richer and deeper and sweeter that cannot be experienced apart from him all because jesus was willing to lay it all down be empty of his flesh and blood to be raised in spirit and fire If we trust in him, we too lay down fleeting and temporary. We take up greater, better, and eternal. If you have trusted in Jesus to save you, you have eternal life. But I hope this can open your eyes to know it's more than just a clock that does not run out. It's a heart that is inspired and on fire. It isn't just about being taken out of this world. It's about being given an out-of-this-world connection with God. This is what the disciples understood and possessed in Acts. It's why they talk about forgiveness and being filled with the Spirit in the same breath. Because they knew that following Jesus was a transition from death to life. And that's why they could say, we must. Because they had a desire and a drive from heaven. Their faith was not just in some religious confession on a page. It was the power of God in their hearts. It was louder than just words. The question for us today, what about us? What is this disconnect between us and them? John 3 is just as much an invitation to us as it was to them. Jesus died for us just like he did for them. He lives in us just like he did through them. But do we have the same must as they did in them? Do we? And if not, why not? We've probably got a lot of responses to that. And God has all the time we need. But why don't we have the same must? For being honest, we still want to feel like we're doing the right thing, but we're often so unsatisfied with life. I want you to turn over to Matthew 16, and we're going to read these verses in closing. I want to show you ground zero for the disciples because they weren't always on this we must level. I want to show you where it really came together for them, not just when they were random followers of Jesus, but as charter members for the church. In Matthew 16, Peter makes this bold confession. He realizes that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And Jesus says, you've got it, Peter. Your confession is spot on. And then Jesus responds to Peter's confession in Matthew 16. And he says in verse 18, and I say to you that you're a Peter. He changes his name to symbolize this moment. And on this rock, on that confession that you've made, that I am the son of the living God, I am the Christ. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind will be bound and whatever you loose will be loose as in you have the ability to make a difference with the power of heaven behind you to change lives, to open hearts to God, to shut hearts to sin. But then he makes this weird, weird statement. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You know what he's doing there? He bought the car for them, but he didn't give them the keys yet because they weren't ready for it. He previews it. But what was going on here is when he first mentions the church and the kingdom, they were like kids whenever we mentioned Christmas, they immediately thought of all the toys they could buy. They thought of all the shallow ways they could experience that in the here and now. But Jesus was about to steer them in the right direction. Verse 21, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, there's our word, he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day and then from verse 22 to 23 peter rebukes him the same peter that was just the guy that confessed that he was messiah says oh no lord you're not going to go and die and then jesus rebukes him and calls him satan and says peter see i told you you're not ready for what i've got for you but i'm going to get you there and then Jesus says in verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? We've heard these verses a million times, but notice the connection between Jesus's must and the must he commands us to have. Verse 26 isn't a threat. This is Jesus drawing out that desire within all of us to do right and to be right and to do what is right. And ultimately, he says, we would trade everything for our souls having peace and purpose. For us, when we're confronted with this, it's like a moment. It's a moment like when Jesus asked people, do you want to be well? Of course we want to be well. What kind of question is that? We can't shake the feeling that we need something better. And Jesus says the way of the cross is the answer. We must be born again. And we must find true life in him. Two phrases I want to give you to go home with that will ensure that you're always living in that better. Two phrases that I think speak to our curiosity and for what's right and give us certainty and clarity as to what will always be right. Under and unto. We are under Christ's reign. Our lives are meant unto Christ's glory. Yeah. Under Christ's reign. Unto Christ's glory. Now think about this. The thing about being under Christ is we're under the grace and the love of God. His kingship and his lordship has saved us and has given us this unction, has given us this must- You see, what was clear about the disciples in Acts is that they embodied the Christian character. The standard that God had set for them. They embodied that character. They surrendered to Jesus. They had been filled with the Spirit, found new life and full life in Him. They were committed to what was right no matter what. They never wanted to live a day not taking full advantage of what God had given them. That's what character is. Character is the will to do what is right regardless of cost. The will to take up a cross and follow Christ, even if it might cost us. The will to deny ourselves, even if we might not at first want to. The will to say we must obey God rather than man. That's why their character lasts to this day. They may be known for their words, but their actions speak louder than their words. They are known by their works. Their testimonies are louder than words. Clearly, they had been born again. Clearly, they had entered into the kingdom. So i got to ask you, what are we known for? What are we known by? Are those different? They say this, but they do that. What's it called when there's duplicity between what we say and what we do? Hypocrisy. The church's story should be louder than words. It should be full of wonderful works of Jesus, Jesus in us and Jesus through us. And here's the thing. Every born again Christian is a part of and a member of his church. People say, I love Jesus and I don't love his church. Listen, you may not come to gatherings on Sunday, but they can't escape the association with the church. Jesus died to put them in his body here or there. Whether they come or not, the church is the home of every Christian. And you that gather here every week have a leg up on those that don't. Whether you go to or not, the Bible calls us to be the church. We must be the church. We must. Church doesn't do any good for anyone just in attendance. Unless there is a character difference being made unless that must is being produced, which is why our services and conversations can't just be words, it's gotta be louder than that. What we do here is meant to produce a clear and dramatic difference in what we go and do everywhere else. We must be born again if we are to find eternal life and if we have eternal life, we must obey God at all costs. We must, and this isn't me saying you better do this, This is even God saying, if you don't, it'll cost you. You know this in your heart that everything hinges on these two imperatives. We must be born again. We must obey God. No matter who you are today, your heart responds to one of these musts. You're in one of these categories. If you've never been saved, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, this is the one thing your heart wants more than anything else. There is a God-shaped hole in your heart. A relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, is what you need to be forgiven, to be freed from sin, and to have full life in Him. Our hearts respond to John 3, 7. You must be born again in a way that can only be explained by John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son to die for us to make this possible. God's love and his promise of full life affirms why we must come to Jesus. If you are a Christian, then your heart responds to the second must, we must obey God at all costs. This begs to inform and change your life in every aspect and avenue. There is a way that honors and glorifies God in every area of your life, from home to work and everywhere in between. And your heart beats for this must. And I gotta say this to church members as a representative of the kingdom of God, of the body of Christ and of here it Risen, you matter to the church. You matter to the kingdom of God. Your voice, your offer, your sacrifice, your support, your service, you matter to the kingdom of God. Only one person can do what you alone have been called to do you must come and cling to Jesus your heart begs you to fill that hole with everything as we try and might nothing will satisfy us but Jesus Christ maybe your heart is beating for one of these musts today maybe you want to respond to God publicly if you if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior why not do it today What with the support of the church around you and eternal life before you? Why not? Why not say today is the day I'm putting my faith in Jesus. He died for me to give me life eternal. I don't want to walk away from that again. Maybe your heart is beating as a Christian to commit to God's standard and walk as his own under his reign, under his glory. Why not publicly respond and vow and join together with one another that we might say we must with one voice would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much, first and foremost, that Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. I must pour out my life. I must bleed and die. I must lay my life down because my love for the world compels me to. Lord, may everybody today know this without a doubt that Jesus Christ loves them and his love for them drove him to a cross to die for them, to wash away their sins, to break the chains of sin and to free them to everlasting life. Before we were ever told we must, Jesus said, I must. And may his must draw everybody in today. Lord, only the Holy Spirit can move hearts. I can't. My words are just drops in the bucket compared to what you can do. You can move mountains. You can move people's hearts today. So Lord, as the Holy Spirit moves in this room and moves in the hearts and the lives of people, somebody that may have never responded to Jesus and has never been saved, would you move in their heart and let them hear that refrain from Jesus? You must be born again. By trusting in him, by surrendering to him, by depending on him, by giving all to him, they can be saved. But for every Christian here today, that we must rings loud in their ears. We must obey God. We must take up our cross. We must deny ourselves. We must choose God rather than ourselves or rather than the world. Lord, would you move in the hearts of people today and help us all make that statement. We must come to Jesus. We must cling to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.